Thank you, brother. Well, there is really nowhere to go but down from here, so I appreciate that introduction. It's good to see everyone. Uh, greetings, as Paul would say, grace and peace to you. We do come to you from uh, sunny SoCal. Uh, the plane did all the work. I just sat there. Everybody always introduces long flights as if you flapped your arms. It really was pretty easy. Um, man, I have been blessed today and last night. And uh, I know this is some people's first, first uh, service, but uh, I, I've enjoyed sitting and listening. And I don't always get to do that. And so it's been, it's been a lot of fun for me to just sit at the table and eat and feast on good food. Um, this morning, Ben, just bless my heart. And then Mark, and, and you, you were supposed to lower the bar, and then you shot it up through the roof. So thanks a lot for that. I really... <laughs> I appreciate, appreciate how we're getting started there. Uh, real patriarchal spirit here this morning. You could tell there was a comfort level, and I, we share a similar path in some ways. Uh, the Lord led us out of our church. We were, I pastored for 11 years in Missouri. Uh, we left in the spring of 15 for no good reason other than the Lord began to change the season in our heart. No problems, no issues. Uh, exciting place to be, great church, great people, growing, blessed, and then Jesus is standing outside the boat going, and that's why we left, and, and that's why we're doing what we're doing, and I travel all over the place trying to pull grave clothes off of resurrected people, because what's happened is Jesus raised you from the dead, no, no man you'll ever meet has the power to do that, but men, do, men and women do have the authority and the call to grab hold of the grave clothes on your life and just pull. So I'm going to try to yank some grave clothes off today. I, I'm not assuming that we all have them all removed yet. I know I'm still on a journey where these guys today pulled on a couple of them in my life, and that's what I like is to have some of those released in me. And so uh, that, that's what we're doing. And, and, but there was, there was a real there was a tremendous spirit here today, and uh, I, there was a real comfort level that I've been excited about today because there's, it's exciting to preach where there's a certain level of comfort. That usually comes because the people are used to hearing the word. And when you go in a place and they're used to hearing the word and there's a comfort level with hearing it, and it's almost as if they, they're good eaters, you know? It's like, well, we taste, this is good. Bring on the, I know what's coming next. Bring me the next course. So you go into a place where they're not accustomed to that, it's really resistant. A lot of people will say to me, boy, I'd like to get you to come to my church. They really need to hear this. And I think, well, they wouldn't hear it. You know, a lot of times they just wouldn't hear it. You'd preach, but it would just be to that wall. And there's, but the, the, there's such an atmosphere of openness here. And so I honor that, and I praise God for it. Um, uh, my wife would love to be here, but she can't. Uh, she used to get to go with me all the time. But we, when we moved to the West Coast a few years ago, uh, we don't have quite the family con construct that we had there. And so she stays home with the kids. We have, uh, my wife and I have been married 22 years. Uh, we... Uh, have two kids, Lucas and Lauren. Lucas is a senior in high school, 17 years old. My daughter is 13, eighth grade. Lucas and Lauren would, uh, I, I was going to say would love to be here, but I don't want to start with a lie. Um, <laughs> that, did, that sounded really bad when it came out of my mouth. Um, they just don't get as much out of hearing dad as other people do. Let's just put it that way. That's, that's all it is. It has nothing to do with the Lord or not wanting to go to church. It's just, oh, dad's preaching. So uh, anyway, that's, that's that. Are you ready for some word? 
let's get busy tonight. Go with me, if you would, to the book of John. I want to deal tonight with a passage of Scripture that was supposed to be beautiful. Um, when Jesus said it, it was supposed to set hearts free. It was supposed to be helpful. But it's been misunderstood, and it's just been flat-out frightening for some people. And I think it's because a lot of times we pull the scriptures out of their context and we use them in our context instead of the audience that they were written to. And so there was a little work done this morning on hermeneutics and uh, excellent work done on that. I would add this little thing to the pie. If you take a scripture out of its context, all you're, uh, all you're left with is a con. If, if there's no context, if there's no text, it's just con and you're going to be conned every time. So always find out what's going on. And it's very important that when we study the word, we find out what's going on. John chapter 15, verse 1. I just want to read a few verses to start with, and we'll probably break away and come back to this passage in a moment. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now, I went ahead and read verse 3. But a lot of times we won't make it very far past verse 2. We've already got really good sermon material. Because in John 15, 2, if we don't have any context, we don't know where Jesus is saying it, we don't worry about the metaphor, we don't worry about the analogy, all we have is if you're a branch and you're in me and you're not doing any good, you're going to be cut off and cast out. But if you're doing good, you're going to be cut some more so that you can do better. And so we've got a ready-made sermon that hits both saint and sinner alike. It even hits good old backsliders, you people that are in church and you're lazy, not really doing much for God. You come in here and thought you were going to get by with just saying amen and moving on. Jesus takes care of that one too and says, listen, if you're not producing, you're not going to make it. Man, this verse was used on me in a background of doctrine in which I lost my salvation just about every week. That's the way I came up. Born and raised in church, my father was a pastor, but our doctrine was salvation was not something you could hold on to eternally by faith. Salvation was something you received by faith, but something you held on to by holding on to it. And you held on to it by showing God how serious you were about living for God. So you better get busy, you better do the right thing and avoid the wrong thing. And if you did too many of the wrong things, you would be cut off from the family of God. If you did enough of the right things, you might receive more anointing. You might receive more blessing. You could gauge whether you were doing the right thing or the wrong thing, not necessarily by looking at your life, but by looking at what kind of stuff was going on. If you were sick, if you lost your job, if your car didn't start, doesn't matter what you thought you were doing, all of it must be wrong. If you were healthy and you got a raise at work and you were paying all your bills and had a little left over, you must, it doesn't matter what inventory you took in your life because the fruit says you must be doing something right. All the good stuff's going on in your life. Anybody else have any background like that? Well, that's, that was me. And John 15, 2 was one of those verses that just proved to me that if I don't produce, I'm in trouble. So I'm going to go to the Father and make sure that I'm working and make sure that I'm doing. Jesus is most likely standing near the entrance to the temple. And Herod's gate at Jerusalem had a large vine that went over the top of that gate. Perhaps Jesus is standing next to a vineyard. We don't really know. We don't get location, but we do understand possibly that we're near the upper room, if not in the upper room, when Jesus makes this statement. And John's not necessarily in chronological order anyway. So the stories are not necessarily happening left to right in the timeline. 
But when Jesus says, my father, I'm the vine and my father is the vine dresser, he doesn't even bother to bring us into the story. Notice that we don't actually come into the story until verse 5 when he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Now, that lets us know in verse 5 that verse 2 was about the disciples. But at the time he says it, all he says to them is, listen, my father's a vine dresser and I'm the vine. And when my father, the vine dresser, goes into the vineyard, daddy takes a look at all of the vines. And if he's looking at the vines and he sees a branch that's not doing anything, he just snips it off and gets rid of it. But when he sees a branch that is doing something, he prunes that branch so that it does something more. And so that we are at rest and not worried about which vine we are, which branch we are, Verse 3, you're already clean because of the words that I've spoken to you. So Jesus takes the, the condemnation away from you and says to the disciples, listen, don't worry, you're already clean, you guys are good, just take this as a lesson and understand what dad's trying to do. And I think this is an incredible verse because Jesus hasn't yet went to the cross, Jesus hasn't shed his blood, and yet he says you are already clean because of the words that I've spoken to you. That's an amazing thing. You're already clean because of the words I've spoken to you. So the, the, the vine speaks into our life, and what the vine speaks holds great relevance for who we are. These guys hadn't confessed any sin. These guys hadn't watched the lamb on the cross. These guys didn't even know about resurrection, and yet they're already clean by the words Jesus speaks to them. There must be power in speaking the words of Jesus. There must be power in hearing the words of Jesus. And so as Jesus speaks over them, he speaks something remarkable into their life. You are already clean. The word clean is the Greek word katharos. And it means what it sounds like it means. Clean, pure, clear. And then this is one we all love because it, it just sounds so poetic. Without spot and blemish. That's katharos. And that's what Jesus says in most usages of the New Testament are that. You are clean and pure and without spot and blemish. It sounds to me like Jesus is speaking that his disciples are sinless, that they are pure because he's speaking over their lives. So we don't have to worry about which branch they are. But in verse 2, he says, if my father sees a branch that bears fruit, look at verse 2 again, if of every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that branch so that it may bear more fruit, and he uses the Greek word kathairo for prune, which is very close to kathairos, which is clean. And katharos means to cleanse, to purify, or to put into position. Now, what is it that he's pruning if you're already clean? He says, you've been made clean because I speak to you. If my dad sees a branch that brings forth fruit, he prunes it so it brings forth more fruit. In other words, he positions it so it can bring forth more fruit. If you're already clean, then why does the father have to prune the branch? Why must he prune what is already clean? Now, in almost every commentary I read, almost every sermon I read, almost everything you read about this verse, this is the point right here where the author or the speaker or the writer begins to talk about how God, after you get saved, goes to work cutting out all of the residual areas of your life that trimming the spiritual fat, getting rid of all the stuff, pulling up the sins you didn't even know you had, pushing the couch back and vacuuming in the, in the, you know, all the stuff you've been hiding, Anybody ever heard sermons like that? So he's pruning all of that stuff away. And yet Jesus makes it, I think, relatively clear. If a branch has fruit, dad's going to prune that branch so that it brings forth more fruit. In other words, the branch is already doing a good job. 
But dad wants to prune that branch so that it brings out something it's not bringing out. Now, I don't know a whole lot about vines. I don't know a whole lot about wineries. So I've taken some trips. And living on the West Coast, that's pretty easy to do. So I've started going to wineries and started reading and asking questions. And something I've learned about wine, something I've learned about the vine, because you've got to start at the vine. you really got to start at the root. You've got to start at the branch where it comes out of the ground and all the grafting that goes on. But one thing I've learned is that the vine will naturally produce grapes all the time. It will produce an enormous amount of grapes at harvest time. I don't mean year-round, but every year. And if it's not pruned, it will continue to produce massive amounts of grapes every year. But the man in charge, the vine dresser, doesn't want a quantity of grapes. He wants a quality of grapes. In other words, he doesn't want just a bunch of fruit. He wants the right kind of fruit. And to get the right kind of fruit, they actually go into the vineyard and cut off shoots of grapes that are growing so that the vine learns to channel its energies into other grapes. So if the, shoot, if the vine has bud after bud after bud of grapes, you can look at it and go, wow, look at all those grapes. That vine's doing a great job. But a good vine dresser can look at that vine and say, it's overdoing it. They're crowding one another out. That, that clump of grapes is choking out that clump of grapes. You're going to have a lot of grapes, but none of them are going to taste quite as good as they should because there's a little too much going on there. It's a little too busy. If you had a vine in your backyard, didn't know what in the world you were doing, you could let it grow every year, and it would produce an enormous amount of grapes. None of them would be good enough for a winery. Why? Because no one is cultivating or pruning or taking care of that vine. Nobody seems to be trimming it where it needs to be trimmed. And so Jesus comes along and says, listen, if you're in me and I'm in you, you're growing out of who I am all you really got to do is grow. And as you grow, you're going to begin to produce fruit. You don't have to stress. You don't have to squeeze. You don't have to shake. You don't have to act. You don't have to do anything. You will begin to produce fruit. When daddy sees that fruit, the father comes along and begins to prune in your life, not pruning out sin. I'm taking my time getting going today because the concept is actually foreign. Not pruning out sin, pruning out fruit. Because the word says, when my father, the vine dresser, sees a vine, a branch that brings forth fruit, he actually prunes that branch so that it brings forth more fruit. What's he pruning? He's not cutting off leaves. He's not cutting off the end of the vine. He's taking off fruit to train the vine, destroying the, the buds that are producing those vines so that next year and the next year, that vine produces a higher quality of grape with what was not cut off the year before. In other words, the father has a keen eye for what needs to be there and what's excessive. Now, why I say this is unfamiliar to us is because, A, most of us, when we hear a pruning sermon, we think we're in for a real sin beating because someone's about to try to trim out all the stuff from our lives. And if it's not sin, it's certainly going to be trim away our laziness or our apathy or something else, you know, something coded, not really necessarily a bad sin, but one of those things that's kind of snuck in and we got to get that out of the way. And so someone's going to be clever and try to trim that off. And yet in none of this instance is Jesus with a fruit-producing vine doing anything to harm the vine other than 
than taking away some of its fruit. Now, if fruit is the product of vines that are, or branches that are attached to the vine, and the branches don't do anything, they just sit there, and the sun does the work, and the water does the work, and the soil does the work, and you're in Christ, and Christ does the work, and all of this stuff's coming out of us, then let me ask you, if the vine dresser is cutting off fruit so that better fruit comes out, what is it that Jesus is cutting out of our lives? I mean, fruit's good, right? There's fruits of the Spirit. Is he, is he trimming off fruit of the Spirit? Is he going, nah, you got gentleness, but you got too much. <laughs> so I want you a little harder. So we're going to put you through the fire. Until you... No, don't move out of the context. Jesus isn't teaching on the fruit of the Spirit. We can't go drag a Pauline idea and slam it into a story about a vine dresser and because it makes sense 30 years from then when Paul will write it. That's, we're not allowed to do that. That's poor hermeneutic. What we can do is realize that we're dealing with real vine dressers in real vineyards. And Jesus might even be pointing at one and saying, look, it, there, there, this is where that, the crop was last year. It's not there anymore because a good vine dresser knows that too many grapes a good wine does not make. Instead, we want better grapes. So I'm on a journey in my spirit to go, what is it that you would lift up and cut off that's good? It's fruit. What is it that you would take? And I began to do self-exploration of my own life. Now, I'll touch on a few themes here today that we actually sat and, some of us sat and talked about today. That's the bad part about sitting and talking before you preach is you, you got one thing on your mind and you're about to preach and there it comes. But I, I, I don't have, I, I call it the three layers of deliverance. I, I, the first layer of deliverance is that whole Jesus delivered me from sin. And if I went around the room tonight and I said, share your testimony, I mean, there'd probably be some jaw-dropping stuff that happened in your life that was straight sin, and you got delivered from it, and we would say, wow. And now I was raised in church, okay? I was born on a Sunday night, and I was in Wednesday night Bible study. <laughs> I'm not making that up. 72 hours, I was in Wednesday night Bible study. I don't rem really remember what they taught, but I was there. That's a brownie point right? I got started good. Um, I sat in church, man, as a kid, and they would pass the microphone around, do testimony service, and people would get up and say, you know, the Lord delivered me from heroin, and I went to prison for 10 years, and, and I would sit there and go, wow, that's a cool testimony, you know, because, you know, then the mic would come to me, and I'm a little eight-year-old Paul. I got saved when I was six, six years old, went down to the altar, Got down on my knees, asked Jesus into my heart. Because at six years old, I was scared to go to hell. That's how I was introduced to the family of God. Come to Jesus, or God will burn you forever. <laughs> now, I'm not mocking my heritage. I'm not cutting my dad down. Hey, if we can't learn from our past, and we can't learn from the things that's going on in our lives, what good, what good is it to be human? We might as well be an animal. They just live by instinct. You and I are better than that. And so we learn from the things we come through. Anyway, I come to Jesus, didn't have a bunch of stuff wrong, and I'm going to get that mic, and I say, I, just, I love Jesus. And I remember getting so, this is the wrong word, but it's the best word I got. I'd get jealous that I didn't have a better testimony. To the point that I kind of thought maybe when you get older, you ought to go out and do some stuff wrong, just have Jesus deliver you, and come back in and pick that mic up with gusto. <laughs> you know? Let's have testimony service. Let me tell you what I did last night. And this is pre-grace for me. I didn't understand the message of grace. 
So I didn't have that, and the Lord, and that doesn't mean I did nothing wrong, and I think everybody knows that, and we all have our stuff, and we all have our issues, but I didn't really have that, first, what I call that first layer of deliverance, that welcome to Jesus. But I had that second one, because what happened is I became a good religious boy who worked his little tail off. 15 years old, I preached my first sermon. Uh, I was pastoring a church briefly at 18, 18 years old, um, because I thought that God had told me to do it. And so ministry was a drive forward towards doing the will of God and putting everything else on hold. And it created a sort of self-righteous man in me who took great pride in how much I read, great pride in how much I prayed, how much I studied, how much I fasted. And the great pride was not just in the quantity that I could do, but the knowledge that I was probably outdoing you. Just being honest. That was the source of the great pride. Because just tell me how much you're doing. That's all the challenge I need. And that was sort of how I approached growing in Jesus. There was a lot of the effort in the branch to produce good fruit. And I had to be delivered from that. And that's what the message of grace did for me, was complete deliverance from that mentality. And I was telling the guys today, there's a third layer that I think was even harder that he's still working on me. And that's that, level, that, that layer that I call the need to be right, regarded, and respected. And that's a toughie, that, that, that need to always be right in every argument or always have the answer to every question, the need to be regarded in the eyes of people so that they think you're something or somebody, and the need to be respected, which is such a seed of pride in us to make, we wanna make sure people know who we are, what we're doing, what we're accomplishing. And that's a deliverance area that the Father is still working on in this guy. And maybe that's a piece of grave clothes that needs to be pulled on just a little bit in somebody here tonight or somebody listening. And so that, that work, that process began to happen in me. And so I realized what a lot of the things that had happened in Paul were not categorized because of that second layer. That first layer I didn't understand that, that I went out and did evil stuff. But man, I understood that second layer. I understood that I went out and did good I went out and did right things. I went out and did righteous acts because I believe they got me something with God. I believe they made me anointed. I believe they would give me power, whatever. Insert why you were doing it here. And that was me. And realizing what was happening in my life. And so the Holy Spirit began to show me this story. And I, I heard today someone mention this was in, uh, maybe it was Mark, Pastor Mark mentioned that this was in a, in a book that he wrote about Mary and Martha, or a couple chapters on Mary and Martha. And uh, I haven't read that, and I didn't go look at it today because I, I didn't want there to be any interference in what I felt the Lord was showing me in this passage. But go to Luke chapter 10, and I, wanna, I want you to take a look with me for a moment at what I think, in my spirit, is a moment when the vine dresser picks up the branch that has good fruit on it and cuts some of it off so that a greater quality of fruit can be produced. In Luke chapter 10, verse 38, it happened as they went that Jesus entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. This is the same, this village is Bethany. We learned that in John 11. And this is the same Mary and Martha from John 11 and the same Mary and Martha from John 13 where Jesus goes into Martha's home and she's busy and Mary pours ointment on him. And this could be the same story from John 13. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet 
and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. I want to work for just a, for just a moment. I want to work the wrong way. I want to work backwards. Rather than walking into the front of the story, I want to go to the end of the story. Because what Jesus says at the end of the story really helps explain the heartbeat of the whole story. The last phrase Jesus makes is, it will not be taken away from her. She has something that is not going to be removed. Now, keeping in mind that Jesus is teaching his disciples lessons as he goes through ministry. Various lessons. But one of them we know that he teaches his disciples is the lesson about vines and vine dressers. And about branches that don't produce that get cut off. And then branches that do produce having parts of those fruits cut away. And Jesus says to Martha, my father the vine dresser is not going to do anything to the fruit being produced by Mary. Because what Mary is doing is needful. It's actually the fruit on the vine that needs to be hanging on the vine. Now, working backwards from there, why is Jesus saying this? Well, it's because Martha comes into the room and whines and says, Lord, Mary won't help me. I'm in here cooking. I'm slaving away. And if she would help, we'd all be eating. So if anybody in the room's hungry, blame Mary because I'm trying to do all this by myself. And Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha, anytime you get the words twice, that's trouble. I learned that from my dad. You know, if you have to say your name two times, buddy, you're in for it. If you say it twice in the same sentence, well, that's just all hell's about to break loose. Uh, Martha, Martha, you're worried about the wrong thing. Mary's chosen the thing which is needful, the thing which is needful. I say it a third time, the thing which is needful, which means, Martha, whatever it is you're whining about must not be needful. And if I won't take away from Mary the thing which is not needful, what do you think I'm going to do with what you are bringing to me? And as we work backwards, what is it that she's bringing to him? Well, it's not just complaint and whining. Although people around Jesus seem to respond to his slow speed with accusations of a lack of concern more than once. You notice that? Not much has changed, by the way, in the church. If God doesn't move at the speed we want him to move, we often think God just doesn't give a rip. Right? Remember, it, because here she says, don't you care that Mary won't help? What a question. It's exactly the same question the disciples asked in the book of Mark when Jesus said to his disciples, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. And they get in the boat, and as they're going to the other side, Jesus falls asleep, and here comes a storm. And a boat full of professional fishermen wake up a carpenter. <laughs> because that's the logical thing to do. Wake the carpenter up, see what he thinks. And the first question out of their mouth is, don't you care that we perish in the storm? Because we always tended to have this, this idea that a lack of quickness on his part, a lack of speed, is a lack of concern. And that's that old piece of us, That's that, which I'll get into in just a moment. But working backwards, Lord, don't you care? What is it that Martha is so concerned about? Well, this is what jumps off the page at me. Verse 40, Martha was distracted with much serving. The old King James says she was cumbered about with much serving. 
Distracted's a better word because it's the Greek word for cumbered. She was distracted with much serving, but I think serving softens it up a little too much. And here's why. Because almost every other time in the New Testament where this word that's used right here for serving is used in the New Testament, it's not translated serving. It's translated ministry. Martha was distracted with much ministry. Because the reason why it doesn't hold the punch for us is because we don't think of ministry as service. We think of ministry as a job. And so when we see serving, we wouldn't insert the word ministry, though in the Greek, that's the exact word she uses. And I think even the translators had a hard time when they were translating this story using the word ministry. Even though almost every time you see Paul use the word ministry, and he talks about ministry more than any other New Testament writer, and every time you see Paul use the word ministry, he uses this word. What they should have said is what the Greek says. Martha was distracted with her ministry. And what was her ministry? You see, her ministry's not a bad thing. It's not like Martha's distracted with murdering her neighbor or Martha's distracted with gossip. Martha's distracted doing a great thing. I would even say to you that Martha's distracted over fruit. You see, what's happening in Martha's good. She's got service in her heart. She's hospitable. She wants Jesus to eat well. She wants all the disciples to eat well. Maybe she takes it too far. Maybe she's pushing people aside and dusting where they're trying to sit. Maybe she's interrupting conversations. We don't get that. But whatever's happening has so distracted her from what ought to be happening. Because who's sitting in her living room? And that's the answer. With Jesus sitting in her living room, she's worried about the bread. She's worried about the food. In other words, there's a thing that Jesus out of his own mouth has called needful. Mary's doing that which is needful. And what's needful is just to sit right here and relax and enjoy this journey and enjoy what daddy has put in me to put in you. This is what Jesus is saying. Whatever the father has said something to me and I want to say it to you and I want to pour it into your life and that's needful to just relax. But Martha, you've become distracted with ministry and what Paul White found was that it was easy to become distracted with ministry. To allow ministry to distract me from just being a son. From just being one of God's children. To as many as believe on his name, he hath given them the authority to call themselves the servants of God. No. No, but it it even flows off the tongue. It sounds so spiritual. For as many as believe in his name, he's given them the power to be servants. And we go, oh yes, that's what I want to be, Father. No, that's not what I want to be. For as many as believe on his name, he hath given them the authority to call themselves sons of God. Anybody can call themselves a servant. That's easy. But to call yourself a son, you got to be in the family. And so to believe on Jesus, we're in the family, and so we get to be sons. Why are we getting distracted with much ministry? It's the pharisaical attitude. And none of us ever think we're Pharisees. None of us ever think that we have Pharisaical qualities. I mean, not me. And yet, if you were there in the first century, and I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, and I don't want to make you believe something you don't believe, but I I believe this. If we were there collectively, and you were to say, who is the holiest people in Israel? The average Jew in the first century would not have said any other names but the Pharisees and maybe the high priest. But when they saw the Pharisees, they were seeing the peak, man. That was the pinnacle. That's what every little boy wanted to grow up and be. That was the holy man of God. 
That's what it looked like. That's what it felt like. That's what it sounded like. That was ministry at its finest. Jesus fights against that. Not fighting against people, but fighting against that mentality. We actually have to get out of this mode, and the grace community is falling into this trap. We're falling into this ditch. We're so in love with the pimps, prostitutes, and sinners, and the idea that Jesus loved to eat with them, and the idea that eating with them means we're cool. We're so in love with that idea that we've forgotten that in more than one place in the Gospels it says, and Jesus sat down and ate with the Pharisees. And if by the metric that eating with them means we're cool, what's that mean when he eats with the Pharisees? See, that one always goes down sideways. It's just not as fun. Because it means we're actually going to have to listen to people that we disagree with theologically once in a while. Because they are so loved by daddy. Oh, maybe the, the appearance, maybe the cumbering about the distraction of much ministry isn't doing anything for the kingdom of God. But they are so loved inside of that ministry. There needs to be an understanding that what the father is doing in Luke with Martha sounds rude. But is actually the lifting up of a vine a branch that's producing fruit and snipping some of that fruit so that there can be better fruit in the future. This move by Jesus is not an accident and it's not just blatant social uh, rudeness. It is a move that he's learned from his father. You see, this is the biggest no-brainer, but I'm not like Jesus in the way I act, in the way I treat people. I want to be, but I'm not because if this were me and I were teaching at your house... And you came to me and said, hey, Pastor Paul, can you, I'm, can you tell Justin to get in here and help me finish dinner? And I'm sitting there teaching in your living room and everybody's listening. Sis, you wouldn't have to say, can you tell Justin? I would come and help you. Because I would feel like, oh, God, we're, man, this woman is really needing some help. And I got to go be a servant. I mean, I'm not like, Jesus isn't like me. Because, see, I would have, man, that's rude. I'm going to go help this lady. She needs help. She, she came all the way in here. This is her need. This is her burden. And yet Jesus says, Martha, Martha, man, you are distracted. You are, you're not putting that which matters first. You, what you're doing, do you hear how insulting this is? Martha, your work in the kitchen isn't near as important as the work in this living room. Now, we would have a problem with that because we would think, oh, we should have you shouldn't have said that to Martha. That hurts. I would have if I were there. If I'm Peter, James, and John, I'd have went, oh, gosh. I mean, Jesus, that's not how we do. That's not how you handle that. I'd have took him to the side and straightened him out. Jesus, can we have a talk? Listen, man, I just, man, just be, just, just be cool with people. Just, just, just be gentle. You, know, you didn't have to do that to Martha. That was embarrassing. Now, what I'm doing is I'm filtering my culture and my mentality and my thinking into the story. But Jesus is a vine, and his daddy's a vine dresser. And hooked into Jesus are branches, us, the body. And there's a sap that flows in a vine. It flows at its peak in the late spring and in the early summer, and it produces the grape. But it also produces every nutrient that the vine needs. When the weather warms up, post-frost, that sap takes off. 
And in all of the spots that have been cut off, there's even a leaking that happens. And the vine dressers have to come in and, and salve those wounds in the vine and help where that sap is leaking off. And they'll take new shoots into old roots. Every vineyard in the world has old roots, roots that have been in the ground long enough to have overcome all diseases. And they will graft in, they will cut a wedge into that vine and then take a branch and stick it down into that wedge and take tape and wrap it so that the branch and the vine become one. When Jesus says, I'm the vine and you are the branches, what he is saying is, I, I am going to graft you in to who I am so that the sap of the Spirit that runs like lifeblood through me will run through you. Paul grabs the analogy in Romans 11. And he talks about being the Gentiles being grafted into the root. Now, he's talking olive trees, but olive trees and, vine, and vineyards work in the same manner. And so you graft that wild shoot called the Gentiles into the root called faith in Abraham, truly in the new covenant called Christ, and you graft into the root that wild branch called Gentiles until they're part of that tree. So that our root is not really Judaism, our root is Jesus. I hear American Christians all the time talk about our spiritual roots are in Judaism. No, our spiritual roots are in Jesus. You're not rooted in, the root in which you're rooted into is not Judaism. The root in which you're rooted into is faith in Abraham. That was Paul's whole message to the Romans. It's faith, the faith of Abraham. The faith of Abraham, which now is faith in Christ. It's faith in something greater than me. It's faith in a promise, hope in a promise. And the wound caused in that vine is where the branch slots in and the tape that goes around it, they begin to heal together. In Isaiah 53, when Jesus, when the prophet says, and he was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. What they were talking was vineyard analogy. The, the root has been wounded so that you and I can be grafted in. And by his wound, we are healed into him. Isn't that great news? So by his wound, we are healed. We are hidden in his God's always been hiding you in the wounds of Jesus. Do you remember the Old Testament story where Moses says to God, show me your glory. And God says to Moses, well, no man see my face and live. So what I'll do is I'm going to walk past you. And I'm going to show you my goodness. You know, and we always talk about how God puts his hand over Moses' eyes and he walks and God, and we'll do sermons on the goodness of God and what that looks like. Great, great stuff. But it's rarely brought out that God, before he does that to Moses, the Bible says, and he takes Moses and he hides him in the cleft of a rock. And inside the cleft of the rock, he puts his hand over Moses' face. And the word cleft is that in the Hebrew is wounds. God literally hides Moses in the wound of the rock and puts his hand over his face and says, if you're going to see me, you're only going to see it from the wounds of the rock. And that's what's happening in us. If you're going to see who God is and you're going to swallow the glory of God, you're only going to do it from the wounds of Christ. You're only going to do it from the place where your transgressions have been paid for. You're only going to have a revelation of his goodness and his glory. Not because, as was said today, it's not because it's good advice, but because it's good news. Good advice doesn't need a wounded savior. Good advice doesn't need clefts of a rock. But gospel does. Good news, your sins are paid for. Good news, you're in his wounds. Good news, you've been healed in him. By his stripes, you've been healed. You've been 
you've been pulled together. You've been brought in. So what looks rough is because we don't understand the heart of the vine dresser. So when Jesus says to Martha, 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 you're just not doing, you're not worried about the right things. You're not consumed with the right thing. It's not an indictment against Martha's cooking. It's not even an indictment against hospitality or against labor. It's doing that which is needful, when it's needful, as it's needful, and as long as it's needful. And it's not being distracted by ministry and by performance. We've become so distracted by ministry in the institutionalized church because we've bought the Western world's idea of franchised church services. Where we come in like, and it's got to be sort of like a franchise. I mean, if you go to a McDonald's in Mobile, Alabama, I live in Santa Clarita, California. You go to a McDonald's in Mobile, Alabama, you get in a plane, you go to a McDonald's in Santa Clarita, California, a Big Mac's a Big Mac. They don't make them differently. They're the exact same thing. They're the same colors. They wear the same uniforms. They've got the same company that puts their signs up as we have that put our signs up. They have the exact same signage on the doors. They use the exact same box for their french fries. Why is that? Because it's a uniform, homogenized franchise model. And we bought that hook, line, and sinker in a church. And we felt like the way we're supposed to build successful things is to duplicate successful churches. And so what they, if they're putting all their fries in a red box with a yellow M, we ought to be putting our fries in a red box with a yellow M. If they're making all their Big Macs with, a, with a, an extra piece of meat in the middle, we ought to be putting an extra piece of meat in the middle of ours because if it works here, it works there. But you are not like the world. You have the living, breathing sap of God, the energy of the Holy Spirit flowing through your life, creating and moving, and in every situation it's unique and it's beautiful. And there's a lot of good stuff that had to come out of Paul White. See, because I thought that it was a step-up testimony, perhaps. And once I got really immersed in ministry, I said, well, it's a step-up testimony to not have that first layer where I go, well, I was delivered from this and from this and from this. And I'd say, it's, it's even better that I've got this. And it's really not, doesn't matter. Whether you came out of heavy sin or you came out of, you, it, we've all come into Christ. You didn't do it anyway. I mean, you know, that's the real testimony. Is my resurrection wasn't me, it was him. And so when, when I began to realize that the distraction was much ministry, I, I'm realizing that Jesus had to remove some fruit from me. You see, that pharisaical idea of what I produce defines what I am or who I am had become a problem. The great conflict with Jesus and the Pharisees is not the people, not the men. It's not that he loves them any less. But the Pharisees had had a distraction. Ministry had become a distraction. Listen, when loving people becomes an interference to doing the work of God, you need some fruit cut off. And that fruit needs to be some of the stuff you're doing. Because I'll, I'll venture that everything you're doing is good. But when doing it becomes a distraction to just being a son and loving God's creation, then it's now in the way of future fruit development. And so while you've got a vine full of good works... 20 chapters a day, two hours of prayer, three days of fasting, 20% the offering, five nights a week in church, witnessing thrice daily. And yet it's difficult to love people. And it's difficult to rest in the Father and just be a son. When ministry has become defined by what you do and how often you do it and how big's your church. 
And how, how much are you, how, who, who, are, who are you reaching? How many downloads do you got? All of these little distractions to just being God's people. When this happens, there's some fruit snipping that has to occur. Martha, Martha, you're getting distracted. Even in doing good things, you're getting distracted in the habit of good things. You know, I've actually had the Father say to me, let me, let me, this is, I don't like, I don't always like telling all the stupid stuff that I came up with in religion, but I found that it kind of helps some Christians once in a while. It's something just embarrassing. I remember I'd been in ministry maybe five years, six years, and still a young, young dude and, and thinking that I was, I was pretty convinced that when God got me to say yes to the call, that heaven rejoiced. Because God had finally found his man of faith and power. And, and heaven took a collective sigh and just went, we're going to make it. it a, hell will not win. We, we got our man. Look, look at him down there. He's, now, I'm saying that laughing, but I mean, I... In some ways, I truly believe that. Now, it would be really funny if it wasn't true. It was true, so it's really sad. Uh, I really did. I thought, Beth, this is, you know, this is the moment in history where. And I would go. I remember buying a little journal. I'd read a book that called "The Hour That Changes the World," and I became convinced that if I could pray one hour, like Jesus did in the garden, and not be the sleeping disciple problem was they were the sleeping disciples. Why does Peter deny that? You could do a whole whole series of sermons on that. Why does Peter deny the Lord? Well, because here he is in the garden, and if he had just tarried one hour, what might have happened? What would have been different as he's warming his hands by that fire had he stayed awake and prayed for that hour? And so I took that challenge. But I couldn't pray an hour. I'd tried. I would fall asleep and get distracted. (laughs) So I bought a stopwatch and a notebook and an ink pen, and I went to prayer. And I blocked out, I drew a huge circle, and I blocked out 12 five-minute segments. And inside of every one of those 12 pieces of the pie, drew, drew a circle with 12 equal pieces of the pie. I'm smart enough to know that 12 times 5 was 60. 52 weeks in a year means you preached 52 times. Got that. And I knew that if I could put 12 different spiritual things, praise, thanksgiving, petition, silence, singing, it was hard to come up. I think I doubled a couple of them. I couldn't, couldn't come up with 12 unique things. But if I could do those 12 things, five minutes a piece, that's an hour. So I literally would get on my knees with my watch and go, Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you. I come to you in Jesus' name. And I'd go and I'd peek at that watch. And then I hit five minutes, stop, reset, check mark, move on to two, go. And I remember going through this process. It sounds horrible, doesn't it? It was worse than it sounds. It was decidedly worse than it sounds. But you've got to understand, I was convinced in the power of the one-hour prayer warrior. I had become convinced. It wasn't, I wasn't shooting in the dark here. I had Scripture. You know, I had Old Testament. I had New Testament. I, you know, I'd give you a list. So let's be really careful. I mean, a lot of the people that are doing a lot of the religious things that they're doing, they're obsessed about and distracted with ministry, they're not doing them 
for any other reason than they believe they've had the same revelation that it'll work that you believe you have with grace. Okay? Understand that. That'll help because that's really helped me. They're not doing it because they're stupid. They're not doing it because they're rebellious. They're doing it because they're starving. And Jesus said, if a man eat me and drink me, he shall never hunger and he shall never thirst. And the reason why we laugh at that 12 pieces of the pie five minutes at a time and a stopwatch is because we're not hungry and we're not thirsty because we've already ate and we've already drank and we don't need revival to know we're his sons. But if you haven't had that revelation, you need revival to figure out who you are. And then you need another one because the minute it's over, you've got to have that emotion tickled again. You've got to bring that back every time, right? And I was doing this one day, and this is exhausting stuff. I got to where I would dread. I'd get to the end of that, that 12th five minutes, and there was this euphoria that happened in my soul that I actually at first equated with the anointing. I was so excited to be done. I thought, look what God's done. Heaven just came down. And, and then after, you know, it didn't take long, I would start to dread. It'd be the middle of the afternoon, and I'd be dreading tomorrow morning. And it'd get closer to bedtime, and I would dread. And I went through this for a while. And one day, I finally I got serious with God, got, got honest with God. And I said, God, i got to be honest with you. I'm miserable. And the Holy Spirit said, so am I. So am I. Now, it would be 10 years, really, before I really had a revelation of grace. But a lot of it started right there. How can any good come out of that foolishness? Right? Let me tell you what the Father did that morning. Is he picked my branch up and grabbed the fruit of prayer. And he went, snip. Son, stop it. I got better fruit for you. This is a distraction called ministry. And I want to teach you. And you're going to bleed. You're going to have some sap come out. And this is going to hurt. Because you're not even really going to be able to explain this to people. Because they're going to say, no, God wouldn't tell you to stop praying. So son, don't even tell them for a while until you walk into the revelation of what I'm doing to you. Don't tell the story. And sometimes you need to keep your mouth shut about some of the things God's speaking to you. Because he's picking up your branch and he's snipping off really good fruit. Who in the world would say, stop praying? But I had heard this voice of the Lord say, you've got to stop. What we're, the, the, the fruit you're producing here is not the quality of fruit that you need in your life. It's fruit. It's fruit. Who can deny it? I mean, if you tell people I'm praying an hour every day, they go, that's great fruit. But there's nothing, there's no life. And listen, I don't care how spiritual it is, what you're doing, how many verses you have behind it. If what you're doing isn't producing life, stop. If you give, and there's no life when you give, there's begrudgingness. And you write that check and go, God, I need that money. Stop giving. If when you pray, there's misery. Stop praying. You shouldn't be miserable talking to the Father. Trust me, he'll still keep talking to you. God doesn't speak to you in seasons. That's an old covenant mindset. God, who in times past and in various manners hath spoken unto us by the prophets, hath now in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. He's not talking to you, then not talking to you, then talking to you, then not talking to you, and I'll get your attention with silence. No! 
No, no, no. The Father has spoken through Christ. You're resting in His wounds. Rest. And He's tied you in there with Jesus. So be there. Secure and at rest. And sometimes the greatest thing you can do is nothing at all. When we left the church in the spring of 2015, pastored 11 years, probably in my own spirit should have pastored 10 and a half. Because the last six months I knew I should be gone because my heart was gone. And I can't explain that. I, don't, I would go on the road and do what I'm doing now. And for the first decade of pastoral ministry, all I wanted to do was get back home to preach. And then that changed. And then I would go out and think, oh, it's time to go back home. And I knew seasons change. The leaves are changing on the spirit tree. Just follow the spirit as he does this work in your heart. Don't stress. I love what was said today. Don't worry about it. I mean, that's how I answer people. They go, what's the will of God? I go, whatever it is you want to do. Where do you think Jesus lives? Because listen, if he lives over in a place called glory on the other side of Mars and you're trying to get to him, then you probably do need to petition to find out what he wants you to do. And it might take a while for the message to get here because that's a long ways off. (laughs) But if you think he lives in you, that Christ is in you the hope of glory, then whatever it is that's stirring in your spirit is to your good pleasure. That's the work of the Father. So follow that. So I did. We got out of the boat. There was, there's been so many times, and I've walked into churches, and I've sat, and maybe nothing. So many times I go on the road, and people would say, so where do you go to church out there when you're not on the road? Because you're not on the road 52 weeks a year. I'm not. I'm trying to raise kids. I like to be home once in a while. So I'm not always home. I'm not always on the road. They go, where do you go to church when you're on the road? And at first, I'd really, oh, man, that was just a struggle, because there was that need to be regarded. And you couldn't be regarded if you said nowhere. Because if you said nowhere, then what are you, in rebellion? Don't you think you ought to be under authority? Don't you think you ought to sit in a local church where you can grow? I knew all the answers. Heck, I wrote that book. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 knew how to, I knew how to pin you and corner you. And I, I got 15 verses for every argument. And so there would be this thing. And the Holy Spirit just began to speak in my spirit and said, son, I want you to just take a deep breath and relax because you're in detox mode. You, you stressed and worked yourself for so long, even in a house of grace. And, but you had so much religion behind that, so much performance for so many years behind that, that you need to sit in detox. You need to let that, you need to let that sap run through your system. I got a work I'm doing in you. I'm cutting some fruit off your vine. See, you, you still got a lot of stuff you regard as good, but I got stuff I regard as better. And the Lord began to take me on a journey, and one of the first trips we made after I'd left the church, and we come, we, we took, I took a ministry trip, and the Lord put a sermon on my heart, and I appreciate this little bitty country church in the middle of nowhere, and there was hardly a soul there, and the Lord drops this sermon in my heart, and we recorded it and ended up going out and touching the world, and we've gotten comments all over the world from it. But I remember the night I delivered it, it was one of those odd moments where you kind of went, what are you trying to do in this little room? And it was a scripture where Jesus, the Bible says, and he he left the multitude and went away with his disciples into a quiet place. And all week long, the Holy Spirit dropped that verse in my heart and said, son, once in a while, I would speak to my son to leave the crowd. And every time he left the crowd, you know he left one more lame person. You know that as he turned to walk away, 
he had one more person go, heal me. You know that as he took that first step towards resting on a mountaintop, there was one more crying mama holding the baby. Now, if you're really religious, you're going to go, no, that never happened because Jesus would have never done that. But how in the world did he turn away? The Bible says he would turn away from the multitudes, from the multitudes, not from the people that have already left, but from the people who are still there and turn away and go find a quiet place to pray. How does he pull this off? In fact, did you know when he feeds the 5,000, the Bible says that he, the disciples had just come back from a ministry trip. He sent them out in twos to cast out devils. And the disciples get back and they're exhausted because that's tough work. They don't even have, they don't have what you have. You know? They leave Jesus, they've left him. And they come back exhausted. And Jesus takes them into a mountainous place to be alone. And when he gets there, a bunch of people follow him. And that's the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus looks at him and says, uh, let's get some bread for them to eat. And they go, well, we'd have to go to town. We don't have that kind of money. And we don't have that kind of time. And Jesus says, well, you guys feed him. And you know the story. And he takes the little fish and the loaves of bread. Have you ever done the math? How many baskets of fragments were left over at the end of the feeding of the 5,000? How many disciples did Jesus have? I think that was for his disciples. Because they were going to spend the next few days in the middle of nowhere. And he says, I'm going to provide for you. I want you to just rest. Here comes the sap through your veins. I'm going to take care of you, boys. Can I just chase this for a second? It's almost eight. I'm going to shut up. Listen, I got to say this. This is in my heart today. And I just felt like, Lord, I'm not even preaching that tonight. So if you work that, if that just flows out, I'll share it. And I think this is that moment. You see, there's, there's a lot of fruit on the vine that we're doing. There's a lot of ministry, a lot of serving, a lot of stuff. And I'm learning that those snips are the father. And we, we don't even like that in grace because we think discipline and chastisement is law preaching. And that's because we, we haven't really understood the heart of a vine dresser. Okay? Chastisement and discipline are not law preaching. Not if they're done by a vine dresser that knows what he's doing. you got a father that knows what he's doing. And so when he clips and he snips, he's not snipping sin. He said you're already clean. He's snipping fruit to make greater, quanti- greater quality fruit. And so... Look at all this stuff, and I think, this has got to look like Jesus, though. This, all this stuff's just theory if it doesn't look like Jesus. If, you can't, if it can't walk and talk and be called Jesus, it's not worth preaching. Right? I mean, that's a little bit of what we heard today of filter this through Jesus. That's, that's just the way I would say it. If it doesn't look, smell, and act like Jesus, leave it alone. You've got a good motivational speech, but you don't have a sermon. So it's got to look like Jesus. It's got to move like Jesus. And one of the things that strikes me so powerfully about Jesus Jesus is 12 years old, and at 12 years old, he knows what he's on the earth to do, right? How do we know? Well, because the Bible says when his mom and dad find him in Jerusalem, what does he say to mom? It must be about what? 12 years old, he's got that figured out. I didn't have that figured out. I didn't know what I was supposed to do at 12, but Jesus at 12, I built my father's business. 18 years of nothing. He doesn't step out of the wilderness John, there's one coming after me who's preferred before me, whose shoe latchets I'm worthy to unloose. And I, though I baptize you with water, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Oh, look, there he is. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Eighteen years have passed between I'm about my father's business and behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Eighteen years of nothing. In fact, in John 2, when he turns the water to wine, the Bible says, and this was the beginning of his miracles in Canaan. So what does that mean? That means that for 18 years he knew who he was and didn't do a darn thing with it. Now, what does that say to me? It says to me that 25-year-old Jesus walked past funerals and didn't raise the dead. 
And 26-year-old Jesus walked past beggars and didn't fill their bellies with two little fishes and five loaves of bread. And 27-year-old Jesus walked past blind Bartimaeus on his way into the city and just listened to the can shake and didn't do anything. And 28-year-old Jesus walked past lepers whose faces were rotted off, who were longing for human affection and attention and didn't touch them. And 29-year-old Jesus watched his own grandmother die or his own uncle get sick. Or watched the hungry, empty bellies of his little nieces and nephews around the dinner table when perhaps they couldn't afford another piece of bread. And 29-year-old Jesus didn't do a thing. And by the time 30-year-old Jesus is anointed with the Spirit and begins to do miracles, his family resents him. They don't want anything to do with him. In fact, his brothers and his mother, his brothers at least say he's crazy. They're so bold with their accusation that in John 7, it's time to go to the feast in Jerusalem. And they mock him and go, hey, why don't you go up there and show them who you are? And Jesus' response to them was the same response he gave his mom at Canaan. In John 2, my time has not yet come. And I'm sure they elbowed one another and said, we've heard that before. You see, Jesus had an understanding of who he was and when he was. And we've lost both. We think that who we are is defined by what we do. That if we had the power, we'd clean out every hospital and feed every hungry belly and do everything we should do because we should do everything we can. Because our idea of good fruit is tons of it, lots of it, as many grapes on the vine as you can possibly put on the vine. And yet the Father knows that the best grapes are not the most grapes. They're the best grapes. And that's different than the most grapes. So Jesus didn't worry about tally marks. He didn't bother to keep score about how many people he had raised from the dead. He didn't bother to keep an accountant on staff to make sure that they had enough bread to feed the thousands. Every moment was a walking in faith moment. Hey, feed them. We think it was a teaching moment. It's just very likely Jesus had no idea how much money they had in the bag. Because Jesus lived in the moment of walking by faith. And when dad says do it, that's what we'll do. It's not that Jesus wasn't prepared. It was that Jesus had understood that part of being underneath the tutelage of the vine dresser is letting the vine dresser call the shots. And so Jesus was great at turning and going to a faraway place and being by himself. While the world behind him went to hell. And when that revelation happened in me, I took my first deep breath as a son and said, man, it feels good just to be daddy's child. I've worked in dad's field. And I was that, pro I was that elder brother, man. Yeah, I didn't have my prodigal son testimony, but I had my elder brother one. And these people come in here in the church. I remember thinking this, sitting in the crowd and actually thinking, watch someone come to an altar and get saved. And I remember sitting in the pew and going, man, I'm jealous of that. They get grace. I wish I could go back to that moment. Look at them. They're so happy. And I drugged that mentality into the pulpit. I remember standing in the pulpit and actually saying to new converts, they just came up from giving their hearts to Jesus, and I'll never forget it. I looked into the crowd, and I said, 
Never forget that you're never going to be as perfect as you are right now. And I thought that was theological depth. You know, I mean, I'm just being real with you. This is your moment. You are everything the Bible says you are, but good luck. Because <laughs> your car's out there, and you're going to get in it, and it all goes downhill from there. Let me, let me, God, I wanna, I wanna, can I read you two verses? You, no one's going to say no, and I wouldn't listen to you anyway, unless it was pastor. <laughs> I would listen to the pastor. So if he said no, I would no. Let me read you, Hebrews 9, 13, 14. I'm going to close. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies the purifying of the flesh. This is a Jew talking to Jews. This is a, a Christian Jew talking to a bunch of Christian Jews, going, listen, remember back in the day when if you touched a dead body and you had to go in there and do all that purifying stuff? Leviticus, Levitical law. If that worked for your flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve a living God? So if it worked on you touching a dead body to go do all this sprinkled blood and ashes and water and then pour it over you and, and then you were clean, and the author's kind of going, how did that work? That just worked because God said do it. If that worked, how much more would Jesus, the eternal one, dying for you and washing you off from sin, how much more would that work to cleanse your conscience from dead work serving a living God? What's he saying? How much more should the blood of Jesus do the work in keeping you from doing the work? Do you hear that? Your conscience provides you with dead works to serve a living God. Why would your conscience provide you dead works to serve a living God? Because your conscience doesn't know better. Your conscience feels guilty and condemned. And so when you fail, you, your conscience offers you up a bunch of good works to serve a living God. You say, oh, pastor, it doesn't say good works. It says dead works. You wouldn't do bad ones to serve a living God. You wouldn't fall for that trick, and the enemy knows it. But you'll fall for good ones because we do it every Sunday. Let me, let me walk through that again. The enemy knows if he offered you up some evil works, you'd rebuke him. I mean, if the pastor got up and said, now if you want to be right with God, you need to go cheat on your spouse. And you'd go, whoa, hey, hold on. Hey, this isn't right. Right? I mean, they, you don't even need it. There's no radar that needs to go up. You don't need to go pray about that. That's an evil work. But if he got up and said, what you need to do is join this group, and get yourself an accountability partner and start confessing all of your stuff to them every day so that they can believe with you and pray over you, your conscience would go, good idea. Great idea, let's do that. Now, did I say something wrong? No, I gave you a good work. It's okay to have people. I mean, James says confess to one another, you may be healed. There's, there's definitely a quality of me telling you what's going on in my life and you telling me what's going on in your life. Good work. What, what if your pastor got up and said, you need to pray three days a week? And God will deliver you. And we would go, great, good work. Let's go do that. What's wrong with praying three days a week? What, what's wrong with, let's fast, seven-day fast. We're having a revival. We ought to have a seven-day pre-revival fast. Because if we fast pre-revival, what will happen? We'll have revival. Ooh, now that one hits home. See, that one we've all, I did that in Charismania all the time. I would, get, I would make God deals and go, Lord, however many days you, go, you want me out on the road, that's how many days I'll fast going into it because I want to be that anointed. So if it's a three-day meeting, we'll fast three days right up to the time of the meeting, and then boom, man, I'm going to be so anointed. Did you know the Holy Spirit never put that in my heart? 
That was my conscience offering up some good works, dead works, to serve a living God. Because I didn't believe fully that I was what the Bible says I was. So my conscience said, how about fast three days? Before you go to this meeting, it'd be super anointed. And I'd go, that's got to be God. Why am I telling you this? Because it's all good fruit. And the father grabs it and goes, it's not for you. You see, should you pray? Absolutely. But you don't have to be told to do it because your spirit's going to cry out to daddy. And that's prayer. Should you give? Absolutely. If you want to continue to hear it. And when you finally fall in love with the place where you're eating, you'll give. Because you'll realize that if you don't, then there's not going to be a harvest. And you like the food. Right? That'll be a response of joy. Should we witness? Oh, you won't even have to be told to. Because what's going to happen is life's going to spring out of you. And once in a while, you're going to get around death. And you're not going to run from it. You're going to realize you got the answer. And you're going to speak into it. And by your words, people are going to be made clean, just like Jesus talking to his disciples. And you're going to be amazed, and you're going to get home and realize, I witnessed today, and I didn't feel an obligation to. How did that happen? Good fruit. <laughs> Good fruit being produced. But how many of you were, were told to witness, forced to witness, taught to witness, trained to witness, and dreaded it? Did you know you had good fruit on the vine and you didn't need it? It was actually stunting your development in Christ. So what the Father has done is he started to lift in the message of grace the trees and snip off some good to go, we can do better. We can do better. There's more to say, but I'm done saying it. I, I feel like I've, this has been a long day. And it's been a long day. It's tough when you're at the final session too. I, I feel like the Holy Spirit has said some things to some hearts tonight. And all I ask is that you let the word do its work like seed in the good ground. Just grow, spring forth, okay? Listen, really only have to listen to the Holy Spirit. I, I want to say this. I've never said this in my life in a church, but I'm going to say this because I just feel the Lord, I feel I'm safe. When I was a pastor and I'd have somebody come in, my people would do what you've done tonight. Everything the person would say that they hadn't heard before, they would look over at their pastor and their former pastor to see if they approved. That happens naturally. You don't even realize you did it for an hour. But there's those eye glances going, oh, I wonder if, oh, I wonder, I wonder if so-and-so. And if so, if they nodded and went, amen, the room lifted. Really did. It was kind of, oh, yeah. Now, not, I've never said that out loud in a place, but I've seen it everywhere I've ever went where they respected the leader. Now, it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Why I'm saying it, and this is, I'm just hearing the Spirit in this. You have the ability to respond to the Spirit independently. Okay? He's safe. Okay? You have the ability to hear and go, yes. And to hear and go, no. Now, I'm only saying this because if you don't cultivate that ability then the leader you love will one day say something and your spirit will go, no, and you'll ignore it because you were taught to always go, yeah. And that's where we build cults. You hear that? It's very careful. I know I'm treading a very, I'm walking a very tight spot right there because I've been, I've led the local church and walked that line and watched that and had to get up and say something very similar. I just, I just really felt that. I would have never said that. I've never said that out loud in my life to another church. But I just really felt that was for this place. 
all right? You're in a safe zone where you're getting word, man. I know it. I've, I've tuned in to the Pure Grace Church podcast for the past few months because I like to know where I'm going. I'm like, Lord, where am, I go- where am I throwing seed? All right? So I can stand here and say, safe house, man. You're walking in the goodness of God. I sat and heard word today. If that's what's happening in Mobile, Mobile's miles ahead of half the towns I'm stopping at in America. You may not think so. You're going, man, we need grace in Mobile. You got it in waves. You ought to see the rest of this barren land where there's almost nothing about a finished work in Christ. So it's, it's a blessing in this house. But just take that. I don't know. That's, I'm going to stop there. That's, it's better to stop there than to keep going. God bless you. God bless you. Pastor.